Welcome to the LSC reading series. Yes! Oh, okay, uh, we are a almost five-year-old reading series monthly. I know. We're turning five in April. <laughs> and our, our second child will turn one in April. It's a big, big month. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. And this week for the podcast, we are going to visit our last live event that we had before the uh, shutdowns due to COVID-19. It was a really special event. It was in February, uh, February 11th, 2020, and it featured four writers instead of our regular three. All four of these writers also are based in Queens. It was a Queens love fest. It was a Writers of Queens evening, and it was really fantastic. We had two poets and two prose writers. And um, in this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear their readings preceded by the traditional LIC reading series share an anecdote about Queens before your reading format that we do. So each writer will share a brief anecdote about Queens before they read from their work. And the writers this evening are, well, that evening, maybe you're listening to this in the morning. I don't know. But the writers were Rosebed Benani, Rai Curtis, Safia Jama, and Stephanie Jimenez. That's Rosebed Benani, Rai Curtis, Safia Jama, and Stephanie Jimenez. And if you want to hear the panel discussion from these great writers from February 11th, 2020, just listen to the next episode of our podcast. And now let's start with our first reader, Rosebud Ben-Ani. Our first reader, Rosebud Ben-Ani. Rosebud Ben-Ani is the winner of the 2019 Alice James Award for If This Is the Age We End Discovery forthcoming in 2021, and the author of Turnaround, Bright Eyes? Thank you. It's over here, right? Yes, Turnaround Bright Eyes, for sale by Story Bookshop, right over there. She's the recipient of fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts and Canto Mundo. Her work appears in Poetry, the American Poetry Review, Poets.org, the Poetry Review UK, Tin House, Guernica, Blackwood, a lot, a lot, a lot of places, like everywhere. Her poem, Poet Wrestling with Angels in the Dark, was commissioned by the National September 11 Memorial and Museum in New York City and published by the Kenyon Review Online. She writes for the Kenyon Review blog. She's currently editing a special chemistry poetry portfolio for Pleiades and is finishing a series called The Atomic Sonnets in honor of the periodic table's 150th birthday. Find her at seventrainlove.org. That's seven, the number seven. Do not spell it out. It's the number seven. Seventrainlove.org. Um, uh, I want to say that Frontier Poetry says Venoni's poem titled, I guess we'll have to be secretly in love with each other and leave it at that. It is a love poem that curls into itself thematically and visually and that she has a generosity of language and image. Heavy Feather Review praises her line breaks and sound play and says that her poems our imagination delights. And um, I'm curious that uh, in an interview with Eco Theo Review, you said that you moved to Queens was a life-saving jump. Let's give it up for Rosebud Benoni. So I have problems with my balance, um, which is why I wear heels. (laughs) 
So if I stumble, don't, don't get alarmed. I have a neurological condition, so sometimes I shake a little bit. Um, I'm not nervous, but then people think I'm nervous, and they think it's charming. And I'm like, okay. Um, so my anecdote about Queens, um, literally I had come from um, a life failed I was trying to make in Jerusalem. Um, I tried to get my PhD there at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And, you know, I'm not going to get into politics, but I found out I wasn't a Zionist, and um, I came back to New York. I went to school here. Um, I have family here um, in Crown Heights in Williamsburg. They're ultra-Orthodox Jews. And when I came back, I knew I didn't want to live in Brooklyn anywhere near them. I wanted to, like, find my own way. And there was just this opening for this um, room available in Woodside, Queens. And I hadn't been back to the States in five years. This was at the end of 2007. And I'd never been on the 7 train. And, you know, I'd been in New York for a long, long time, but I'd never taken the 7 train. So I didn't know that there's that moment when it breaks from underground to above ground. And <laughs> I was broke. I had been homeless. I had nothing to my name. Um, I disappointed my parents, more on them later. Um, but there's that moment where the train broke above ground. I'll never forget it. And that's when I knew I'd come home. And it's really just wonderful to read here in Queens because when I tell people I live in Queens, they tend to like look at me kind of funny. They're like, oh, you don't live in Brooklyn? I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't live in Brooklyn. I did when it was still Brooklyn. I'm just kidding. Anyway. So to kick it off, I'm going to read a poem um, that's set on the seven train. Um, so I'm half Mexican, my mother on my mother's side, and then I'm Jewish on my father's side. And when I was younger, uh, the woman you see here before, before you uh, used to tag. And if you don't know what that is, it means it's like graffiti, right? So I used to tag. I used to not, again, be this lady before you. I used to be something else. Um, and I really loved K-pop. Does anybody love K-pop? So I was really into this group called Big Bang. Um, I still am. And I was madly obsessed with G-Dragon. Um, and so he kind of helped me come to terms with being queer, with not, you know, being a Zionist and all this other stuff. So this is set on the 7 train. It's called Mata Rose, which was my taggy name, tags G-Dragon on the 7. Mata Rose never comes home. She's hungry like a wolf. She's Rosa de Moton Le Croix, all the girls hail on Queens Boulevard, all the views she's killed, and the name of Iman and Yasmin Levan. Mata's quite meta. Mata means kill, rose, occur from the real meat of it all. She's part my little pony. Into brony she has loved and loved not by astropony compatibility chart. She's the queerest part of me, what's left after the club's close and has yet to go. Home she never goes. When she writes, I always write in bed, just whoop down at three musketeers. Mata's on a mission, which is to say I'm my most queer. My most Mataros, when she and I don't need all the girls in the yard, don't need all the girls in the yard, by which I mean the one who's not the one, who's blocked, text, and torn up, wish you well, slicker still, that riddle get you killed kind of a woman for whom Mataros almost cut off a foot, went to the end of two butt ghosting rails. My man is a little afraid of Mata. He accepts her, though, lets her come and go, because I stay, I am always with him. Because Mata just wants every seven train to dissolve into G-Dragon sound, wants you to howl, boom, Mata, Mata, boom, Mata, Mata, wow. G-Mata, Dragon Rose, the most pony of them all. 
Gee, Mata seven, dragon train rose, don't wait up, never last stop, never comes boom, Mata Mata boom, Mata Mata home. Um, so I have to read this poem because of what has been going on with a certain book called um, American Dirt. And me and some other authors have been targeted for speaking out. And so I realize this is on a podcast and I hope the people that targeted me and other Latinx poets are listening because fuck you. Um, so my mother's family um, lives on the border of the Rio Grande Valley and I've seen what has happened to the Rio Grande Valley in the years. Um, um, I spent a great deal of my childhood and my teen years there. Um, and so long story short with this poem, I went to Hong Kong in 2010 to make a film about what was going on at the border at the time with the cartels. Um, it's a long story, but I dated, and I'm not making this up, and I bet he's listening to. I dated a Taiwanese pop star. Um, he was okay. He wasn't that great. Um, but anyway, so, so, so we, tried, we were trying to make this movie, um, and it just never happened because of something his mother, who is a famous producer in, in China and Hong Kong, told me. Um, and... I realized that in my life there has been this proliferation of violence, particularly through guns, whether, you know, when I lived in Jerusalem or when I lived in Mexico, like, well, not in Mexico, but on the border, like, just the proliferation of guns in my life, like, that was not normal. When I would tell people things that I witnessed, um, particularly in the United States, they'd be like, you know, that's not normal. Um, so I think we internalize violence, especially as women. Um, and so that's where this poem comes from. It's called Guns on the Table. In the years I lived with a Taiwanese former pop star, couldn't feed the business, couldn't hang with the gangs of Asia behind Johnny Toad's triad odes, in which there are no guns at all, in which, in his films, gangsters are strangled. They are chopped up in meat grinders and fed to dogs tethered to sworn brothers, who will stab to death sworn uncles. That's the business, and could you, could you, the former pop star's mother, asked me. She's produced films all over Asia. She wants to know just what I'm made of. How would I handle, would I go missing for hours like Karina Lau in the days of being wild, blindfolded, shot topless by those guns on the table? Could I, could I too, just to make a film, would I sit in a restaurant straightforward somewhere in Central, where anyone who's anyone in Hong Kong knows business is done elsewhere? Would I ride of Mexico's guns with Hong Kong gangsters who finance it all? Don't you know what I know, she said, when you roll up to the table, what will you show? That summer, three men came to my childhood home, claiming they'd fix the cable my parents didn't own. Then father wanted a gun, but mama said no. This woman loves Clint Eastwood and Desperado. She forgives the scantily clad for the gore. My mama is guns on the table. Her first words in English were make my day no. At 12, while Abuelo hunted Javelina along the border, she chased away a man who came to take their home. My mother alone with a butcher's knife and then a shovel. After it all, my mother couldn't walk straighter. She threw off every saint and every novio. Don't forget, she says, while El Mariachi dies alone. On the border, police kidnapped an uncle in that long before of Mexico, long before when the cartels were still in Colombia. They poked him in the ribs, skinned a print off a finger. He was only freed when my family gathered enough cash, the kind that brings guns to the table. And what of his grandson, the namesake of my abuelo, born of the border? He got 60 years at 18, 
gangs, addiction, first degree, because what else, what else but for guns on the table? I'm more like my cousin than you'll ever know. I'm not your heroine, I'm not your girl. What would I do at times to get done without beginning? When in Israel I shot my first rifle, it knocked me off my feet. I was a firehouse, a fireman throwing. I arose, vaguely heartbroken, then vengeful. I wanted more, not some bato in his backyard with tactic-issued alphabetized spit polish. I wanted simple. Four shells pump action, pick myself off one by one in some wide, wide open. I wanted recoil. I wanted recoil. I want for my cousin strung on heroin, making it known through glass, separating his hand from my own, that at 18 he's done all he is to do. Now how to disappear, how to go without eating your heart when someone's rolling up to the table about wolves and brotherhood. And what of a woman, what's she to do when she knows this business all too well when they came knocking, that summer came knocking on my door? Honey, little friend, don't you know, K-dramas can't show anything at all, even simulated. But in every one, there's a woman seized by the arm, don't you know, she wants to, she wants to, she has to be told. Honey, don't you feel lucky? Well, don't you? Um, so... I'm going to close on this poem because I want to hear from the other readers. Um, I usually, I've never closed on this poem before, but I feel like I have to because I already told her I was going to read it. And I'm like, why did I do that? But, so this is called Shitty Little Dinosaurs. Um, and it's not a Queen's poem. It actually takes place in Hong Kong. And so I don't know if you know this, but there's these wild cockatoos in Hong Kong. Um, and my husband and I live there now in a, in a little room. Like, we don't live there now. What am I saying? We visit. When we visit, we stay in this little room that my father-in-law built illegally on a building. Don't ask. But these cockatoos, like, torment me. And they only torment me. They don't torment my husband. Because um, when he's not there on the roof with me, they don't come. Um, so to get my revenge, I wrote this poem about them. Um, so this is called Shitty Little Dinosaurs. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> There are birds arising in these flying little dinosaurs. There might be two or three in a single little cannibal who steals the last piece of chicken, though I've laid out premium seed every night and every morning on the rooftop of my in-laws where my love and I sleep, in a little room, in a little bed with its little canopy of red ribbons and mosquito netting. Every night we watch them like little beasts awakening in cave paintings without belief in anything but themselves these flying little creeps who seem to know it all, who don't listen to God or natural law or me. Without fear, they remain forever not dying outside of promised land. No, they enter wherever, however, chewing through wood and rag and screen. And when the clouds lay low in the afternoon from the haze come out little dragons too, who descend to undo clothespins and nails loose, at least five little dragons in each, whose true fire is their speech taken from everyone and everything. Muffled laugh track and hawk shrill, quartering lovers and siren church bells. In August drench until the sky dims, the whole of Hong Kong screams out at them. They taunt and torment, and yet we never hear them coming. And they are never of one place or one thing, these shitty, shitty little things, who won't leave a single grape to roll lonely on my plate, because once, too, they were little cockatoos in shitty little crates crossing the South China Sea. This they have not forgotten. Every night they feel the need to escape, to not not arise from our skylines, while I hide my most precious things. 
as if they will always be with me, as if the day will come they do not return to the rooftop when I'm not holding my breath, face pressed against torn of mesh. What they are, this earth never left. I see the sunrise and sunset within seconds. There are hundreds and hundreds of birds arising within every one of them. Thank you. up one more time for Rosebud Benoni. Thank you for reading Shitty Little Dinosaurs. I felt a real empathy for the cockatoos in your poem, actually. Well, yes, you. But for the entirety of life that was on that rooftop. Um, also, I love that you had never been on the 7 train before coming into Queens that first time, and you can now be found on 7trainlove.org. It's a very romantic train. I'm sure you're all very familiar, hopefully, with the 7 train. Our next reader, who um, has a very concise bio that he's provided, but don't worry, we'll say more. This is Ry Curtis, you guys. Okay, I'm sorry, I always want to say Amarillo. Amarillo? Yeah, I know, it's, it's my problem. Okay. <clears throat> Rye Curtis is originally from Amarillo, Texas. He is a graduate of Columbia University and now lives in Queens. Kingdom Tide, over here on the table, a storybook shop, is his first novel. We have two debut novels here tonight, by the way. It's very exciting. The Guardian calls Kingdom Tide a strangely compelling debut novel. The LA Times says, Ry Curtis's debut novel, Kingdom Tide, is that rare, genre-fluid story that is lovable, both because of and despite its surfeit of eccentric, over-the-top characters and moments. Some are gritty and dark, others light and wise. Together, they create an impressive first book and a highly original tale of adventure and perseverance. I was riveted reading this book. Just ask my husband. I was riveted. Can't wait to hear what I read from it after he tells his Queen's anecdote. Please welcome Ry Curtis to the stage. Thank you, Catherine. And thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, so I'm, you know, from Amarillo, and I'm have been in New York for about, I guess, 13 years, but only in Queens for about two of them. So really, the best anecdote that I have is pretty brief. It's just a, I, I, I went to jury duty in Queens, and that is quite an experience because you have so many different kinds of people all exhausted and probably not wanting to be there. And, um, and you get to hear from many of them, because you're there for most of the day, or at least I was, and we all had to stand up and give kind of a brief uh, bio. And so it was very interesting, and I, you know, in spite of how tired I was, I loved it. So thank you to Queens for that, among other things. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read two little sections from this book I have here. All right. Uh, oh, and you should know it's uh, 
narrated primarily from the perspective of a 92-year-old woman recounting her time while she was trying to survive the wilderness in Montana. I no longer pass judgment on any man nor woman. People are people, and I do not believe there is much more to be said on the matter. Twenty years ago, I might have been of a different mind about that, but I was a different Chloris Waldrip back then. I might have gone on being that same Chloris Waldrip, the one I had been for 72 years, had I not fallen out of the sky in that little airplane on Sunday, August 31st, 1986. It does amaze that a woman can reach the tail end of her life and find that she hardly knows herself at all. I sat by the window and my dear husband, Mr. Waldrop, sat on my right. He had his hands busy fiddling with a ragged cuticle. My husband was a kind, bird-faced man and he wore strong glasses. He was born in Amarillo, Texas, to an awning salesman and a midwife. I first ever laid eyes on him in the summer of 1927 at a county dance in the town hall. This was after his family had moved some 60 miles east from the big noisy boom town of Amarillo to little old Clarendon, where I was born and raised. He was a terribly handsome boy, tall and dark-haired. However, he wore a little blue cap that made him look mighty silly. We were both only kids. I had just turned 13. He gave me a pitifully wilted rose he had stolen from Mrs. McKee's garden. On that morning in August of 1986, he had a dab of jalapeno jelly on his chin. It had been there since our complimentary breakfast at the Big Sky Motel in Missoula, Montana. I was going to tell him to use the handkerchief I had embroidered with his initials and given him so many Christmases before, but he had already begun for the pilot a monologue on rainfall. Such was his custom with men he had just met. Mr. Waldrop had arranged for us to take a scenic flight to an airfield near a cabin we had rented in the Bitterroot National Forest. The pilot he had hired was a strong, well-groomed young man by the name of Terry Squime. Terry was not a hair over 30 and was newly wed. He showed us a photograph of his bride. She was pretty and resembled Catherine Drewer, a rude and frustrating brunette woman I knew from our church, First Methodist. Only Mrs. Quime was quite some years younger and had a jaw less like a shoehorn and a nose less like an old mushroom. When I would later come to know Mrs. Squime, whom I have cautioned against reading certain passages of this account, I would find her to be a pleasant and selfless young woman and to be very little like Catherine Drewer at all. Mr. Waldrop carried on about rainfall and the nuisance of beavers, and I returned to looking out my little window. The Cessna 340 is a little twin propeller airplane of six seats, and ours had taken off from an airfield outside of Missoula and was flying south over the Bitterroot Mountains. I mean to tell you these are mountains, the kind that remind a person, no matter how old they are, that they are infinitely young to the earth. These mountains are edged and scalloped like gigantic kin to the arrowheads my little brother Davy, God rest his tiny soul, unearthed in Paladura Canyon when we were small. I lived 72 years in the Texas Panhandle, and mountains are not a geological feature you will find in that country. The land is as flat as flat can be, level with what is level in the Constitution and spirit, the people who walk it. We Plains folk are a grounded people and rarely see a mountain. But having seen what I have now seen of them, when I say these were mountains, you would be right to believe me. So here's the next section of when she is contemplating a lot of unanswerable questions out in the wilderness. There are all manner of uncommon perversions. The 
first and only time I got into that internet without our dear grandniece there to shepherd me, I read an article about a young man, a Daniel Plant, who claims to have had sexual intercourse with 2,367 cats and dogs and 112 even-toed ungulates. Apparently, he takes great pride in his efforts as he has requested inclusion into the Guinness Book World of Records. I understand he was denied. Now, what is a person, let alone a person my age, supposed to make of a thing like that? I have now spent some time reading about his, the sexual customs of different cultures throughout history, and there are certain practice, practices I have learned about that have upset and confused me tremendously. That of ancient Greece in particular, and how even now on some islands in the Pacific, women have more than one husband, while on other islands, the elderly are known to bed children, all of it acceptable to them. But I suppose we're all, for better or worse, deviants of one kind or another to someone somewhere in the world. Depending on the way things are at the time, some of us stand out more than the rest. When you give it any thought, it sure is funny how we decide what ought and ought not to be tolerated in the civilized world as time goes on. I cannot find the reasoning in it. Always. We all desire one thing or another. I suppose we just have to find the decent way to go about getting it without causing misery to those who do not want the same things we do. The problem with Mr. Plant is that we do not know whether or not any of these animals consented. I am, incl I am inclined to think that they did not. I do not know Mr. Plant, but I have not heard of any man who could talk a pig into having sexual intercourse with him. However, here's the problem with passing judgment on Mr. Plant. We do not give a pig much say about anything else a pig does. I do not believe pigs volunteer themselves up for bacon duty. Yet most people in this country are mighty happy to play a part in that. What I have come to understand now is that judgment is often passed as a matter of convenience. And I am inclined to believe that the savage satisfaction most of us get in casting the first stone will be the eventual undoing of civilization. For this reason, I fear that there is no remedy to the problems we have understanding one another and I dare not venture a guess as to how any of it is going to end. The only solace that I can find in any of this is that I do not expect to be around much longer to see how bad it all gets. Thank you. Keep it going for Ryan Curtis. to end on at the New Hampshire primaries. You don't want to stick around and see how bad it gets. <laughs> um, thank you uh, for, for that. Um, you guys, it's a really, uh, it's really interesting that the novel goes back and forth between two different characters and we heard from Cloris, but there's another very interesting character, very different from, Clor from Cloris, uh, but another I don't know. I, mean, I, I can't. You just have to read it. It like opens with a very dramatic thing that happens, and the rest of it, you're like, what? For like the whole thing, I was like, what? And it makes you question, like that whole thing about judgment. Okay, okay. We're gonna have uh, one more reader before the intermission here, and it is Safi Ajama. Safi Ajama was born to a Somali father and an Irish-American mother in Queens, New York. Yes. What? 
A Dikave Condom graduate fellow, she has published poetry in Plowshares, Rhino, Kajibi, Boston Review, Spoken Black Girl, and No Dear. Her poetry has also been featured on WNYC's Morning Edition and CUNY TV's Shades of U.S. series. Jama is the author of Notes on Resilience, which was selected for the New Generation African Poets Chatbook box set series edited by Kwame Dawes and Chris Abani by Akashic Books 2020, y'all. That's this year. Um, fun fact, we were chatting before the event, and I just want you to know that everyone contains multitudes because we have a poet here, but guess what? For two years, she was a nonfiction editor for Effigy Journal because we can all do lots of different kinds of things. Um, and I do want to say um, there's some of her work over here, and what's it hold up the book? Thank you. It's, it's Soul Sister Review, yes? Soul Sister Review. Um, her poetry is striking. It's like in one to two lines, there can be so much meaning and resonance. It's just like I just need two lines sometimes out of a poem. It's, I read it very slowly that way because I'm like two lines and I go, oh, okay, and then I can keep going. So I would love for us all to give a big round of applause to the multi-talented Safiya Jama. Thank you, Catherine. That was lovely. Uh, okay. Queen's anecdote. So I was born in Queens. I feel like that's enough. But um, I'm also tall. Okay. Um, but I, I was thinking. I, I like to kind of um, get into the moment, you know, and so. I'm wearing this belt, and uh, I was visiting my mom, who lives in Queens, and uh, and she said, uh, "Oh, I, there's some stuff upstairs I want you to look at, um, and uh, you know, it's from the neighbors. You know, his mother died, and uh, you know. Anyway, I thought you might like some if there's anything. So basically, it was like like a rummage sale of like." A dead person stuff, and and this is what I picked out. It's made in Italy, um, <laughs> and it belongs to a woman from Queens. <laughs> so, um, needless to say, I I realize that's you know possibly an off-color anecdote, but what I'm going for is really kind of this kind of sense of Queens Gothic, you know, um, which I think characterizes my work in some shape or form, as you'll see. So um, that's it. That's my anecdote. <clears throat> I'm going to read a few poems from uh, my chapbook, Notes on Resilience, which is forthcoming in, in May. And I hope you all order the box set series, uh, 11 African Poets of the Diaspora. Um, and these are the first few poems. Here goes. Dad's Last Visit. I'm in my mid-thirties, but I still drag my Fisher-Price toy castle to the center of the area rug. My niece, I see, has been playing. I find a plush raccoon behind the drawbridge, a doll wedged in the tower. 
indignant, I mess up her system. Put the raccoon in the tower, hide the girl doll. I examine a souvenir-sized Somali flag, blue with a white star, which someone has pinned to the spring pole with a pink barrette. Dad jokes, if the president of Somaliland saw that, I'd be fired. Silently, I hope he does get fired. I miss him. Little do I know, he'll soon be home for good. The doctor in Nairobi will say, quit fooling around. Dad will return to Burrow for one last goodbye, then home to us and the world's best hospitals. I don't know this as I inspect my old toy castle, rescued from the trash by my mother. That castle became my signature toy, Sophia's castle, indestructible. I press open the trap door and see the prisoners have had a little hay to sleep on all these years. My castle gives me the courage to ask, how is the family back home? Dad's voice drops to a lower register, harder to hear. I fix my eyes on the alligators still circling the moat. Um, this next poem originally appeared in Plowshares last spring. Two gifts. I got a carousel of carved horses, pastel pinks, blues, greens, safely the most beautiful toy our garden apartment had ever seen. And Grandma Shine gave my brother a flashlight that resembled a roll of lifesavers. And he was quiet a moment before he began to whisper about the beauty of his lifesavers flashlight, all bright red yellow, green, with possibility of light and hope of rescue from the dark where I spent my days playing alone in a closet upstairs. How long did it take? Five minutes? An hour? I gave him the carousel. I consented. He didn't have to pry it from my fingers. My brother had a way of getting his way, twice my size, twice my age. Age, his powers were godlike, omniscient. Not my mother, not my father could stop him after he ran out of tears. I went off to play with my flashlight. I didn't mind too much. Didn't see him fish the toolbox out from under the bed. He used a screwdriver to loosen the horses from their stable not stable, more like a little stage where they pranced to a tinkling melody that came from a golden wand shaped like a butterfly. What he had done, what he had undone, the glittering bones of the music box splayed open, a few horses half broken on the carpet. Grandma woke from her sleep in the next room. Her heart was weak and her face turned to stone as she said my brother's name like a curse. He just wanted to see how it worked and besides that, I had given it to him. He kept saying, 
She gave it to me. She gave it to me. Yes, I had been given a gift of music and song and horses, and he had been given, what, a flashlight? We didn't live in the country and hadn't had a blackout since 77. I couldn't have been much older than seven the day my brother took me apart with tools from the family toolbox. He lined up the instruments on the blanket. I lay still under the ether. He nodded to me each time like a surgeon nodding to his nurse. Sometimes grace is a child looking away. I didn't see what he had done, what he had undone. The glittering bones of the music box splayed open, a few horses half broken on the carpet. And those that remain seem now chained there. I looked away from all that, the closet door ajar. Um, so I actually wrote that poem in part to impress Toy Derricotte because it was her last um, Cave Canem workshop. Um, and so it kind of made me just like go that extra mile. So thank you, Toy. So uh, this poem, I, I like to follow the last poem with because it provides a kind of historical context um, that is colonialism. So here it goes. The Victorian era. It was a long period of peace, prosperity, refined sensibilities, and national self-confidence and crumpets. The Whigs became the liberals with strawberry jam. Pax Britannica, economic, colonial, and industrial consolidation temporarily disrupted by the Crimean War in 1854. Quiet, please, this is a library. The end of the period saw the Boer War and a widening voting franchise. Beware of the wild boar roaming the library. Lord Melbourne, Benjamin Disraeli, Lord Salisbury, AKA most honorable, quote, a patient pragmatic practitioner with a keen understanding of Britain's interest. He oversaw the partition of Africa. You're a good patient, my dear. Sir Robert Peel, Lord Derby, and Lord Palmerston, William Ewart Gladstone, we're so glad to see you. Ireland's population, however, decreased sharply. Good night, Irene. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> that, was, that last part is a line from Lead Belly, Irene, good night. So anyway, um, which closed out the Victorian era. Thank you for listening. I wanted to um, just give a quick uh, advertisement for Soul Sister Review, a poetry compilation. Um, and unfortunately, my poem doesn't fit into my time frame, and I don't want to go on forever. But you could think of this as a sequel. So, like, what happens next? You know, read about it in Soul Sister Review. I have a poem in it called Love Machine. Um, and it's a wonderful collection, um, and uh, by all the books, by, by this book. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, everyone.
big round of applause for Safiya Jama. We're really excited here tonight to have two poets and two novelists. It's, it's a very special Queen's evening. Uh, let me tell you about Stephanie. Stephanie Jimenez is a novelist and essayist, born and raised in Queens. Uh-oh. Bringing it up a notch. All right, Queens, New York. She is a graduate of Scripps College and a former Fulbright scholar to Medellin, Colombia. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The Guardian, Electric Literature, Catapult, Joyland Magazine, and more. Her debut novel, They Could Have Named Her Anything, right here, being held up by our lovely Astoria Bookshop bookseller, was published in August of 2019. Let me tell you all something. Or two things, in fact. The Latino Book Review says this is an unforgettable and complex coming-of-age tale that you won't be able to put down, so beware if you buy it, it may become glued to your palms. Kirkus Review says it is bristling with adolescent insecurity, sexual tension, and status consciousness. Jimenez's debut is a natural for both adult and teen readers. It's got something for everyone. Let's give it up for Stephanie Jimenez. <laughs> short as Sophia is tall. Um, so thank you, Catherine, for inviting me here. I am really thrilled to be here because I have a lot of Queen's pride. <laughs> I love Queen's. Um, and so I, I had a really hard time coming up with what's my anecdote about Queen's or even what's my favorite part. But I, I think I came up with one. And my favorite part about Queen's is that you never need to buy a pet. You can just walk down the street or fling the door to your backyard open and there will be a beautiful stray cat looking up into your eyes. And, and I, I, I actually, one of my friends who lives in Queens texted me recently with a photo of a cat and I was like, do you want this one? And I was like, no, I need to break that cycle. Like, I can't be that person that I've always been. Um, but that's, that's what I love about Queens. And I, you know, whenever I tell people that I grew up in New York City, people are always like, whoa, like, you must have grown up so fast. And I'm like, no, like, I had a really beautiful childhood. Um, and I, I just always love to talk about that and how, you know, I grew up in a house in Queens where we had a backyard and we had the stray cats. And um, it was just a wonderful place to grow up. Um, and I'm going to read a passage from a book that will actually make you think that I did grow up very fast, <laughs> but I promise you that. And before that, I had a great childhood. Um, <laughs> uh, but this book is my debut novel, and it is, thank you, um, it's set in New York City, and it is about these two teenage girls from very different worlds. One lives on the Upper East Side, the other lives in a very diverse neighborhood in Queens. Um, and it's about what happens when, when their paths collide at this private school, um, and they become friends, and it's a very dangerous and complicated relationship that gets them both in trouble. Uh, so this is at the very beginning of the book. All you need to know is that Maria is really upset because her father has just told her that he might not have the money to send her away for college, and for Maria, this is all she wants to get out of New York. 
and see something different. In algebra class, they were given assigned seats early in the year. Maria, who got her worst grades in math, was assigned to the front of the room. Usually, she didn't mind sitting in the front because that's where Karen, who was the only other girl who lived in Queens, passed her perfect origami cranes made of notebook paper during class. But Maria, whose eyes were puffy and whose, hel and whose head felt clogged up with water, didn't feel like sitting in the front of the room today. I'm sitting there, Maria said, pointing her finger at the desk where Amanda Combs sat. Amanda was a girl who was wiry and had blonde hair all over her, hair in places where it shouldn't be. She looked like an overgrown infant. By that point, Maria knew that certain girls at Bell Seminary were intimidated by her, though she didn't know exactly why. Sometimes it was isolating. Other times it was useful. You can't, Amanda said. We're not allowed. Maria clicked her tongue. It sounded the way Velcro does when it rips. It was the way her mother did it at home whenever she was annoyed. But Maria knew that girls at Bell Seminary didn't grow up with that noise because whenever she did it, they frowned. To them, it was a foreign sound. It gave Maria her power. Get up, Maria said. I'm giving you permission. Amanda stood. She went to the front and sat in the seat Maria had abandoned. When class started, Mr. Willoughby noticed that Maria had traded seats. Maria, Mr. Willoughby said, that's not where I put you. Girls made Mr. Willoughby nervous. Maria knew this, and so did lots of her classmates. At the time he was hired, the class above Maria's had replaced all the dry erase markers. He went to write the do now on the board and pressed down on the whiteboard with a tampon. When the girls at Bell Seminary told this story, they always said the next part with disgust. He dropped it as if it were a severed finger, as if the tampon he were holding were used, as if he'd been holding something squirming alive. Idiot, they'd all say when they got to that part. I know, Mr. Willoughby, Maria said, leaning over her desk. She uncrossed her legs, parted them slightly. She felt her purple bra strap fall off her shoulder. But I'm comfortable here, see? Mr. Willoughby inhaled like something smelled really good. Whatever, Maria, he said. Maria felt a firm tap on her shoulder. Rocky was sitting behind her wearing a pair of dark sunglasses. An extra large cup of coffee made a brown ring on the desk. Rocky was a chocolate brunette who had such heavily bleached golden highlights that they sometimes looked white, giving her the appearance of a comic book superhero. A pack of cigarettes peeked out of her breast pocket of her black denim jacket. Maria had always known Rocky was different from the other popular girls in the grade. The rest of them all wore matching ballet flats and Tiffany hearts. But Rocky had a Planned Parenthood sticker on her laptop, and she rubbed black eyeliner under her eyes. Rocky had never paid any attention to Maria before, so Maria tried not to either. Nicely done, Rocky said. That was professional. Maria smiled. You either got it or you don't. Rocky, Mr. Willoughby said, interrupting them. Your sunglasses, please. The whole class turned around in their seats. Rocky lifted her head and looked around as if regarding her audience. Rocky, he repeated, now. Rocky straightened her jacket. She brought her fingers up to her face so they framed her right lens. Slowly, seductively, like a French movie star, 
She looked at Mr. Willoughby and pulled the sunglasses off her face. All the girls in the room started giggling, including Maria. Let's talk later, Rocky whispered, leaning over her desk. Her breath was hot on Maria's neck. We can learn from each other. Maria nodded and turned to face the front of the room, trying to contain her surprise. Near the whiteboard, Karen was staring, puzzled. Maria shrugged with her face, then took out a pencil. For the rest of the class, she looked at the clock every couple of minutes. Rocky had never spoken to her before. Maria wondered what they would learn. Thank you to Stephanie Jimenez. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.